We've got a cracking lineup for you this evening. We're going to be talking in just a moment to Oscar Foku. It's uh, quite an interesting situation that Oscar got himself into. He is a property uh, investor or a property runs a property company called Milestone. And uh, Milestone got into some very, very interesting situations with the CCMA. We're going to be talking to Oscar in just a moment. Stay with us. Well, sometimes you just want to listen to that music all the time. But this isn't a music show. This is Rational Radio, and it's a warm welcome to Oscar Porku, who is the chief executive of Milestone. Good to have you on the show, Oscar. Uh, I suppose it's been a good week for you if one has a look back at the issues that you had to deal with over the past few years with the CCMA, not what most businessmen deal with on the fact of having to sort out uh, employment issues, but yours involves a, a property uh, in Cape Town, number one here in Grach Street. And just, just go back a little bit. I've looked through the court judgment, so we can talk about it now. You've won the case at last after, wow, seven years of, of, of battling with the CCMA. But how did it all begin? Um, thanks, Alec. Look, I mean, um, this whole saga began when we were awarded a bit to uh, provide office accommodation for for the CCM in Cape Town in 2012. So all went well. Um, you know, we prepared the building for them for occupation. And uh, it got to a point where, you know, we could sense that, you know, there were certain things that weren't going according to, to plan. Uh, we were issued with various uh, default notices, which uh, were quite surprising, really. And um, we responded to those default notices, obviously. And uh, it got to a point where they told us that actually uh, they made a mistake by uh, awarding the bid to Milestone. So um, they needed the court to uh, basically set aside the agreement we've had with them and, uh, and, and uh, you know, render it... Uh, um, Maybe uh, let me let me just go point. let me just go through this a little bit because this is what I read from the judgment. In on the eighth of June, twenty twelve, the CCMA published a tender document to say it wanted a new office in Cape Town. Yes, is that correct? And it wanted an office for That's ten correct. for ten years. So That's right. so you were one of the bidders, and over six months, you finally after six months, you finally got the bid, and uh, then yes. then. You, you. What happened then? Because number one here in Grach Street is clearly the, the the building that that you'd identified that you could then acquire and presumably fix up for the CCMA. Did did you have yes. to do that? Did you have to go and buy the building ahead of this? Yes, we we, we bought the building. Uh, we bought the building, and uh, we. I mean, they liked the building. You know, it, I mean, if you know. Cape Town very well. I mean, uh, number one here in fact is one of the most uh, premier locations in Cape Town on the foreshore. So I mean, it it, it really ticked all the boxes as far as uh, their requirements was uh, were concerned. And um, we went through the process of you know uh, of being adjudicated and uh, you know the process being audited and so forth. So there, there weren't any issues insofar as the uh, location or the actual building itself. And it's know. a 10-year ten ten deal. So this is, this is not insignificant. A 100 million rand deal. And <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden, right. you, you get told by the CCMA, 
they're not they're not moving in. They were supposed to move in in March 2014, according to the the judgment. Um, they didn't go in in March, and then in August 2016, they told you they're not going in. On on yeah, what grounds? Uh, well, look, they we then get told that listen, uh, we we are not going to 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 to, to move in on the basis that the CCMA had made a mistake in their uh, point scoring system when they were uh, uh, adjudicating our bid. So this is now, call it what, eight months into the process. And uh, we had spent quite a substantial amount of money fixing up uh, the, the building in terms of renovations, tenant installations, and so on. I mean, I'm talking, you know, tens, uh, about, 20 odd million rent which was spent in, in fixing up that building. And what what and, made you uh, what made you take on government? Because often businessmen say, "Well, okay, maybe I'll let this one slide." Uh, were you? Uh, what motivated you to do that? Because it clearly uh, everybody can see they put out a tender. You win the tender. You fix up the building. Six months after they're supposed to move into the building, they haven't. They say they're not going to because they've made a mistake. Even though the tender was in the government uh, in the government tender bulletin, what made you take them on here? Did you just have to? Look, I mean, obviously we we were we were financially sterilized, you know, and um, we 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 took a principal decision to say, look, uh, we, we had done nothing wrong. Uh, one, we we had complied fully with uh, what. Uh, what they required, and we delivered a building which we thought that met the requirements of the CMA. So, uh, from us, really, it was a conviction issue to say, look, we can't let this uh, uh, this matter uh, lie down. Um, we, we're going to pursue it and seek justice. That's exactly what we did. And you had to fight for years until last week. You got the judgment in your favour, and they have to pay the cost. So, so what happens now? Do they now move into number one here in Grock Street? Well, um, Alec, we had since uh, sold the building because commercially it didn't make sense for us to hold into a building which was empty and uh, in the middle of uh, Cape Town because the building was fitted out to CCMA's uh, requirements. So we had to sell that building and uh, pursue NETA, uh, uh, you know, separately by way of uh, filing for, for, for damages. How much? So, uh, Oscar, what, what, what's at stake here? How much money is at stake? What will CCMA end up paying you for all the trouble that you've had to go through over the past seven years? <laughs> yeah, look, it, it, it's, um, yeah it, it's quite a substantial amount of money. Alec. Um, you know, we've put in summons, uh, and... and, and uh, for about 80 million rands. I mean, we spent basically for, for a loss of income and, you know, what we've spent in relation to fixing up the building and uh, making it ready for the CCMA to occupy. Oscar Poku is the chief executive of Milestone. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? There, uh, the CCMA, government department, goes ahead, puts forward a, 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 a tender document. He and uh, his company then apply for the tender, takes six months, they win it, they then start spending tens of millions of rands fixing up the building, and the CCMA decides six months later, no, it didn't want to move in uh, into that particular building, even though it had been involved in the whole process of fitting it out. Well done to Oscar and his team, and uh, I hope he gets every cent of that uh, money that he is due as a result of the mess-ups that the CCMA did.
Good luck for the small man. Well, it's always a good night when one gets to talk to Jean-Pierre Fister. Um, last time we met was, uh, we saw each other was in London, Jean-Pierre. You've moved on since then. Now you have your own business, uh, Protea, um, uh, Protea? Capital Management. Uh, yeah. Capital Management. <laughs> Gee, where that slipped out from. Um, and uh, you're also having a look back on the whole Able story. And that was, there are a few things I'd like to pick up with you. You're one of the most popular investment managers, I'll have you know, with the business community. People just, just love you. And, and the fact that you are on the show is a, is a, a great thing for our community. But just to, just to go back a little bit on the Able story, you went short on Able long before the collapse. Uh, we've subsequently seen that they've now sold last week Stan Gen for, uh, well, it was in the hundreds of millions of rands. They've also got this thing called Africa Phoenix. There's still now a new African bank that's coming in. But had, if one had held on to Able shares right through the whole process, how would you be sitting right now? Sure. Uh, yes, uh, Alex, so the last time you and I spoke was in London in October 2016, and before that we spoke in August 2014, just days after African Bank Investments Limited was uh, suspended on the JSE, and the main subsidiary, African Bank, was of course placed in curatorship, and that precipitated the suspension of the shares. Now, those shares were suspended at 31 cents per share. So if you were an ordinary shareholder in African Bank Investments Limited, that is where the value of your investment was frozen at. From previous highs of trading to the 40 rand per share to a low at the suspension of 31 cents per share. Mm-hmm. Now, those shares were suspended for uh, the better part of a year. And during that time, like I mentioned, the main subsidiary, African Bank, the actual bank, uh, was placed in curatorship. And the company ultimately lost control of the bank. So all that was left was Ellerines, which was then placed in business rescue and wound up. And then another subsidiary, the one you referred to that was recently sold, called Stangen, Standard General Insurance. Uh, and it's quite interesting, Alec, if you, if you go back to the time that African Bank Investments Limited, which of course is an investment holding company, when it got suspended and, um, and after it lost control of African Bank, when it came then uh, two years later with its first financials, after the loss of control of African Bank, they did show a negative ordinary shareholder value of, I think it was roughly minus 500 million rand. Mm. So in effect, ordinary shareholders were wiped out completely. But, and this is an important point, we can get into a bit more detail if you want to, African Bank Investments Holdings Limited also issued preference shares and those preference shares contributed capital to the business in 20, 2005 and 2011, a total of just over a billion rand. So even though common equity shareholders were wiped out in the demise of African Bank, because there was still preholder capital left and because the investment holding company still owned Stangen, through the affluence of time and the generating of profits by Stangen, and very importantly, the fact that the board then decided not to continue paying pref share dividends, some value was accumulated again to the point where today African Phoenix, the new name for African Bank Investments Limited, is now trading at 63 cents. So that is the current value that an ordinary shareholder that was suspended at 31 cents per share in 2014 has today. Roughly double that at 63 cents per share, but it was 
created, that value was created on the back of Stangen and on the back of the group not paying preference share dividend. Well, okay. So now we understand. So if you'd been uh, one of those scalpers or the cigar butt investors who went in just before it was suspended and you paid 31 cents rather than the 40 rand that shame some people had, uh, had, had hold on to it, at least it's uh, five years later, but at least that 31 cents is now virtually double. Correct. And if I use the rule of 72 and divide it by the five years gone by, uh, that means it's roughly a 14% return on your investment if you bought it just before the suspension. So not not a terrific return, not a bad return either if you look at markets that were uh, going sideways. But it could have been very different, Alec. And that's why I started in my explanation to say that the common equity shareholders were actually wiped out because it's very contentious that the bank or, or the board of African Bank Investments Limited decided to not continue paying preference dividends. And that is why the common shareholders then could have a doubling in their value. Because those preference dividends were issued not by the bank. They were not bank-issued preference. They were issued by the investment holding company. Mm. And a lot of those preference holders were pensioners and individuals who, who, do, not, who do not maybe understand uh, corporate law and the rights that they had. And because of that, uh, the preference dividends Basically, also when they were suspended, but when the suspension was lifted, they collapsed in price to around 20 rand per preference share from previously being roughly at 80 rand per preference share. And these poor pensioners sold out to a lot of hedge funds that then accumulated preference shares and ordinary shares. And in that process, now in this last five-year period, came to this point where we've now seen a transfer of value of hundreds of millions of rand from the pockets of preference shareholders to ordinary shareholders with these uh, hedge funds and other uh, directors uh, pulling the strings behind the scenes. Now, uh, it is quite interesting that the, the story isn't quite over yet, Alec. Uh, this was a scheme of arrangement, as I call it, where, this, uh, where all the pref, uh, shares were repurchased roughly a month ago just before the Stangen sale. But three preference shareholders uh, dissented, and I'm one of those three, and we said to the company that we demand fair value for our preference shares. And there's still uh, probably a court case to come, and the court will determine what is the fair value of these preference shares. What an interesting story. Thanks, Ron Pierre. That is the one that I think has passed most of us by. Uh, we also were asked uh, in our webinar earlier this week about NASPAS, and I said I didn't know NASPAS, or I didn't know the uh, the details as well as a, uh, a money manager, and I'm hoping you can help us through this. We've got a lot of people who in the business community have been invested in NASPAS. We've loved the stock, and they've done very well out of it. But now what do they do with this listing of process in Amsterdam? Can you advise us? Sure. So basically what NASPAS are doing is they are taking 25% of their business and selling it to offshore investors, and doing it in a structure called process and listing those shares that they will sell on the Euronex exchange in Amsterdam and South African investors in this whole reorganization will be given a choice. There's a default and then a choice that they need to exercise actively. And the default is that they will receive shares in process, one process share for every one NASPAS share that they previously had. And in effect, their, uh, their economic interest does not change but that reorganization for a taxable investor. So this is now an ordinary private investor, not a fund, not a collective investment scheme. For an ordinary investor, this will be a taxable event for that 25% of the shares that are sold to uh, a new foreign shareholders. So what it means is if you do nothing as a private shareholder, 
you will be taxed on 25% of the value of an ASPAT shares. So uh, you you might be happy to get processed shares because there's an expectation that the discount to the sum of the parts, which has uh, which has continued in the NASPAS listing, might decrease in percentage terms in the process listing. But you will get a benefit while on the other side paying tax on 25% of your holding. So for South African private individuals who want to try and defer that uh, tax event, they can actively choose to rather receive NASPAT shares listed still on the JSE rather than the process shares. And uh, if they do that, they defer the capital gain. It will ultimately be, be need to be paid when they do sell their, their NASPAT shares ultimately one day. But then the problem you have is you hold shares in a holding company of a holding company. Mm. And you run the risk that the total discount between NASPAS and its underlying investments like Tencent actually increases because there are now two entities between you and the operating businesses. And that is the, the, the problem, Alex, that I can't say necessarily the one option is better than the other. You either need to pay the tax now in this year with 25% of your holding being taxable, or you defer the tax, but then you run the risk of a higher discount, uh, and therefore that the NASPAT share will trade at a discount to the process share. And that is why a lot of uh, people have called it a Hobson's choice, because you, you sort of lose either way if you're a taxable investor. But if you hold it to a unit trust, uh, your unit trust manager will probably choose the process share, and you will not be taxed on that because unit trusts uh, do not pay capital gains. Well, at least it's one advantage of unit trust. Shame they've, they've come under a lot of pressure lately with all the costs, etc. But uh, that's that's good news. Thanks for articulating that. Just to close off with these, we also had questions on the South African property sector, and I had a look at the South African property index, which um, in the end of 2017, so 18 months ago, uh, the index was trading on the JSE at 689. It's now at 490. It's down 29 percent. There is hope that there will be interest rate cuts, which is usually good for property. But how are you reading this? Is it time to maybe go back into those property stocks? Well, firstly, if you look at the index, uh, as always when one looks at the index, it's important to understand what the constituents of those uh, of that index is. And in the case of the, the South African property index, the resilient group of, of companies is a large part of that. Now, Alec, another story where there's probably another chapter to be written is the whole, uh, 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 I don't know what you want to call it, tussle between the resilient group of companies and, and my previous employer, 361, that happened at the start of 2018. And we still need to see exactly what the outcome of, of that will be. But it does mean that because the resilient group of companies were such a high weighting in the index, and those shares specifically fell a lot, uh, one needs to have a view on those specific shares in the resilient group to then decide your view on the index. Now, subsequently, things in South Africa have gotten even tougher, and a lot of other property companies have also seen pressure on their share prices. And even today, uh, there was an announcement between the Mira and uh, SA Corporate, and recently there was an announcement between Arrowhead and Gemgrow, where a lot of the smaller companies are starting to merge. And you'll probably continue to see that in the property space because things are so tough. The only way that some of these companies can show any growth in distributions is to merge and, and gain scale. But for me, in the short term, I still see things on the ground as Africa as very tough, negative reversions, very difficult for property companies, and therefore I don't think it's necessarily a good time to get involved in property yet. Jean-Pierre Fester is the Chief Executive of Protea Capital Management, and I'm sure there are lots of people who have now got new guidance on exactly where we go to from here on those uh, big issues, the NASPAS issue, property issues, and interesting to get the insights 
on Abel. Stay with us. We're going to be talking to a whistleblower of note in just a moment. His name is Jean Lorena. Jean Lorena joins us now. Jean, you've had a story as well that a little bit like Jean-Pierre Fustet was telling us earlier uh, on African Bank. Yours, though, involves a company you used to work for called Syme Derby. Is that the, uh, the big Malaysian multinational? Yes, that is, Alec. And in 2012, you left there on bad terms, and you said uh, you were going to report them to various authorities, including the Competition Commission. Sam Darby, just to fast forward a little bit, and we will get back into your story in just a moment, uh, it admitted uh, to collusion and to market uh, sharing and to being cartel-type behavior, paid a 35 million rand fee, that was in 2016, and it's going to build a 135 million rand packaging uh, plant in South Africa as a penalty. But Unilever thus far hasn't admitted anything, but its day of judgment comes on Friday. I guess uh, you've been following this closely. What's going to happen on Friday? Alec, um, yes, it has been. It's been a long journey. Um, I'm glad to see the, um, the, you know, the, the tail end of it approaching, which which is great. Um, Friday kicks off at the competition tribunal, where Unilever will obviously um, present their case along with the competition commission. Um, and it's, um, it's scheduled to, um, to take about a week or so. And, um, obviously they're going to, um, or they're wanting to fight the case. On what grounds? Uh, which is, quite an, which is quite an interesting one. Um, the, I don't have obviously all the detail on, on what they're wanting to, f- uh, fight, but, um, they, they're clearly wanting to, to defend their position, which, which is going to be a tough call. Um, given, like you said earlier, that Sam Darby has already admitted to, to colluding with Unilever. Mm. Uh, just to go back into your own story, what motivated you to, to go to these extraordinary lengths? Because people don't blow whistles. They, they, they're pretty scared to take on big corporates. You weren't. Uh, Alec, it's, it's, um, I think it's most probably part of my character um, not to accept Let's call it the status quo. Um, and back in 2012, uh, it, it was a big decision um, to go and report to companies because you can just imagine the type of, you know, sort of repercussions that you could uh, experience from from um, going through something like that. But at the end of the day, we we all consumers. Um, so whether we sort of at the top of the food chain or at the bottom, we all consume food product. Um, and I just felt on my heart that it was the right thing to do, uh, and and that companies need to, you know, they need to be ethical, and um, you know the brands that they build um, hold integrity, and they need to follow through with that. Mm, especially a company like Unilever, which positions itself as being one of the good guys internationally. This must be pretty embarrassing for them in the Netherlands. Uh, have you seen any? Uh, any feedback from that side, from that side of the ocean, that clearly the local guys have been doing things that they won't be terribly proud of over there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, and the embarrassment's been been carrying on for a couple of years for them now. You know, because obviously keeping in mind that the Competition Commission raided their offices in 2014, then at the Umsanga the, um, offices, and uh, as well as the Sam Darby offices. So, you know, so they've had quite a lot of bad publicity 
um, from from 2014. So it's quite a long a long period to to sustain um, neg- let's call it negative publicity in the fact that um, you know offices have been raided. Uh, the company that you're colluding with in 2016 has admitted guilt. And um, 2019 is, is now your time to s- sit in front of the tribunal. John Larina is a whistleblower who has been on a long journey, as you've just heard, since 2012. And uh, we'll have more of that story on BizNews. In fact, there's lots going on on BizNews at the moment. So go and read the site. It's always busy, always lots of fascinating insights. And uh, again, a uh, a, a activist, a, a civic society activist who didn't turn his head the other way, that did get involved and uh, good luck to him. We'll be watching what happens at the competition tribunal on Friday with Unilever. Stay with us. We're going to be talking about a good news story, a good hope story in just a moment, uh, a South African success story in the international markets. Well, joining us now is Nick Dreyer, who's one of the co-founders of a company that's, uh, well, shaking up the international world, I hope, going to be the South African version of UG. I saw, uh, I have a, I have a sister-in-law in, uh, in, in Australia, Nick, and she was proudly showing her UGs, uh, to say that she's now a Dinkum Australian after being there for 20 years. I, I, I wonder if people in South Africa show their Felskuns and say, hmm, I'm a Dinkum South African too. Well, Alec, that's kind of the plan, you know, the, uh, thank you for having me on and, the idea is to create a, a universal clothing item that signifies being from South Africa or having been to South Africa and to celebrate in all the wonderful stories, things and places that we're all about. So hopefully, hopefully that's a, a qualifier in the future. Uh, now you guys were, you came to my rescue in January this year, uh, through Greg Beadle, who's one of the great photographers of the, of the world, I'm sure, because the wet things, so anyway. I, I, I had a, a pair of snowshoes which I'd been using in divorce for t- more than 10 years. They fell apart, and Greg had a spare, extra spare, uh, share of feltskins, and I wear them very often. They're very, very comfortable. Where did the, the whole idea, first of all, come to, to, because you guys have only put this together in 2017. Yeah, absolutely. It, it came quite quickly and organically. It was uh, a mate of mine, Ross Sondach, who's one of my co-founders. Myself and him were having a conversation. We were actually talking around the fact that the South African Olympic team previously had not looked very good and that they didn't have anything that was iconically South African to wear. Um, you know, when they walk out of that whole uh, Chinese sort of tracksuit vibe going on and we thought if they were to wear something what could they wear and we came on came up with the idea that we could make Falskin look really fun um and then we hit our straps quickly in e-commerce and um and got up and running and it, it went really nicely quickly um and you make you, you mentioned greg beadle um one of the great the great secrets of our, our growth has been to have really passionate influences that aren't necessarily headline influences, but what we refer to as micro influences, guys that are really, really smart and 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 well connected, but that are totally passionate about the shoes and sort of you know tribe. Mm. Well, you also have someone in in our tribe who's uh, who's, who's 
gone a little bit beyond that. Brian Joffe, well known as one of the great entrepreneurs in South Africa, who, who bought into your company last year, bought 49%. I mean, that's unusual yeah. for Joffe. You've only been going for a year, and then he comes in and buys 49% through Long for Life. Now we know what your turnover is, uh, 9.2 million a year. We know you're losing 3 million rand a, a, at the moment. So uh, actually having that, that public exposure, uh, it, it, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It is a double-edged sword. You know, having a listed partner as a shareholder comes with um, its, its own unique challenges. Um, of course, Brian, being an incredibly astute investor and an incredibly smart entrepreneur, um, it, with its challenges, however, they're great challenges to have because, you know, for a startup like ours, the the reporting, the the guidance that you get in terms of prudent planning and you know, the way to manage your capital and the way to like get onto a, a responsible growth curve is absolutely immense and totally invaluable to um a bunch of startups like us. So it's been a fantastic relationship. Um the the why he did it, I think he recognized that there was an opportunity to really grow and scale a business. And um as we know he's got a he's got a pretty decent track record of spotting those sort of things. So the 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 opportunity that came, yes, slightly out of their mandate normally I suppose. It's, it's a little bit more venture than anything else. Um but so far so good. The business is growing. Um as you've seen the results, you know, the the the, the nice thing is that the growth growth trajectory is steep and um and the opportunity to start trading outside of our borders is, is incredibly attractive. Just for other entrepreneurs, when you get a big partner like that, do they, do they lend you money and put it in as a loan account so that they can take it out first, or do they put equity in? How does something like that work? Look, it, it, it's, it really is horses for courses, and entrepreneurs have different routes to funding. The one thing I will tell you is that funding is very, very difficult in, in South Africa. You know, it's difficult to get funding as a, as a, as a startup. Banks um, are, are, are limited in, in what sort of funding they can provide. So you have this, you have this choice between debt financing or, and or equity. Um, the most important part for us in our decision making was to find the right partner. And we felt that Long for Life was a very strong partner. We knew that they were investing into lifestyle products. And at some point, whether it was our Felskin shoes or our Plucky shoes, there would be an opportunity to leverage that relationship responsibly and to potentially get into places where we would have struggled before. So, you know, the, the immediate result of our relationship with Long for Life was access to a retail environment with outdoor warehouse, um, which is fantastic for a small startup like ours in the shoe business because you have to learn your straps in retail. And as, as we know, it's not, it's not easy. Um, so to have a, a friendly, a friendly entity that guides you and holds your hand a little bit is, uh, is really, really of great value to us. Well, it's a, it really, it's a fantastic good hope story for entrepreneurs in South Africa. Just to close off with, uh, in the annual report of Long for Life, it says that your results were disappointing. They were disappointed by the results, but encouraged by your positive trajectory. And it, it, it is illustrated or emphasized later on in, in the commentary around your company by, saying that you really are getting good traction now in the foreign markets. Uh, big stuff happening in Asia and Jamaica. Yes, you know, we've, we're, we're constantly looking for places where we can go and start 
um, in the same vein as we did in South Africa, which is to attack e-commerce. And then once you sort of settle, move into an omni-channel distribution um, space. Um, so Jamaica is of, of particular interest that the, the, the desert boot, you know, the Clark's desert boot is one of the, is, is the single most popular shoe in Jamaica. Um, which is interesting because Clark's has never, had a store in Jamaica, um, and if you if you if you follow the history of the Clark's Desert Boot, it was initially inspired by the South African Beltskin. So we sort of we're tongue in cheek saying that they've been wearing the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the international international game is where we want to play. We're doing really nicely in America. We've we've set up some interesting relationships there. Um, but Alec, it is very early days in our business, but. Uh, the, you know, and the, the note about the, the the results so far; those those results are early, as you know. They came out almost eight months after the the you know those are the results eight months after trading for the first time with that investment. Um, but so far, so good. We're 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 growing nicely, um, and we're managed to uh, managing to unlock multiple distribution channels and just territories, which is good for us. Nick, when I wrote about you in one of my newsletters, I got a very angry man writing back to say, it's not felt schoon, it's fell schoon. Do you get that, uh, that kind of um, pedantic uh, customer? We, 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 of course we do. You know, Feltskin doesn't, Feltskin is, 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 is a national treasure. It's, it, it belongs to the psyche of South Africa and Africa. Um, so you're invariably going to get folks that are very, very passionate about it. On that particular point, neither is right and neither is wrong and neither is more right or wrong than the other. We chose to call it Feltskin because it relates to field shoe in English. And, um, we love the idea that Feltskin is a, is a fantastic shoe to travel in and to, to migrate in and to go from one place to the next and also to find yourself in different parts of the world and I think you know when your story came out about Davos that is exactly the sort of thing we want to hear about Feltskin sort of saves the day on the other side of the world it it makes our hearts warm (laughs) well maybe Nick you're going to uh, give the whole South African delegation to Davos next year your Feltskins and then they won't slip and slide and break bones as as always seems to happen I think you mentioned that they were pretty good on the snow so we'll take that they, they are brilliant, and it's uh, also a brilliant story. Thanks to Nick Treyer from Feltskun. We're going to be finding out who is the best network, the best cell phone network in South Africa in just a few minutes. Well, pretty appropriate, that message in a bottle. It's a warm welcome to Marius Hollenbach, and uh, he's with MyBroadband.com. Uh, and you guys have just had a, a, a phenomenal uh, um, and well, it's I suppose phenomenal is a little excessive, but every year you go and have a look at who in South Africa is providing the best cell phone service. This year, MTN came out on top, which uh, I immediately got onto my good pal Byron Kennedy at Vodacom and said, "What's happened to you guys? I thought you were the number one network, but <laughs> clearly, clearly, Morris, you, you've you've uh, you're highly respected because." He said, no, no, MTN have made big investments, and in fact, they, uh, they do deserve it for the moment. Just, just take us through the, the way your survey is done. Yes, so as you, as you rightly pointed out, it's been a hotly contested uh, title um, between MTN and, and Vodacom for the past year. So what we do is we collect um, data about uh, the network operators in South Africa through two, two main channels, um, which are both based around the app we have. So firstly, the, the app any user can download, install on their smartphone, and this app allows them to do a, a network test, um, which tests the download speed, upload speed, and latency um, on that user's device. 
And then secondly, we, we've got a, a specialized vehicle that we've set up um, and we put smartphones in this vehicle and we've got the same version of the app installed on the smartphones. And we take this vehicle and we drive through the country. We cover thousands of kilometers and right throughout the, the app does network testing, testing those three metrics, download speed, upload speed, and latency. So we collect all that data over a quarter, uh, we process it, and we use that to calculate a network quality score for each mobile operator. And uh, the network quality score is a, a normalized value we assign to each operator that gives a, a relative performance index um, in comparison to the other operators. And that's a point out of 10. And this year, or this this quarter, um, quarter two that just passed, uh, MTN came out on top. How, how how big is the difference? Is it, must I now cancel my Vodacom contract and go back to the <laughs> MTN? No, no. Um, uh, MTN and Vodacom um, always perform well in, in our tests. And they, 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 Stand out um, quite quite a bit above the, the other guys, um, and it, it it is a close race. Um, in in the past, we've seen them at, at such a close level that you can't call the one over the other. That statistically, the the results have just been too close. Um, but recently, MTN has pulled out ahead. Uh, MTN, uh, as I mentioned, they had a nine point seven eight out of ten rating, and Vodacom um, came out to eight point two four. So that's that's a very small margin, but but big enough um, for us to to comfortably claim that that is uh, um, for quarter two. You know, it looks like my Vodacom network on this side is giving a little trouble now. But uh, <laughs> Marius, just to, just to close off with, what about Cell C? There's been some big investment made into Cell C by some pretty shrewd operators. How do they rate? <laughs> the, um, Cell C uh, has not performed well. Um, they came uh, out of the five operators. They came last. They only had a network rating of 5.35. So, even though they've seen massive investment into into the company, um, these the, the network performance of of the operators do closely relate to the amount of investment that's made into their their own network. Um, Financially, Salsi has been struggling, and, and that, that's quite evident in the results we're seeing. The, the more the more the networks invest into the the, uh, the more the operators invest into their own network, um, typically the the better they'll do um, in terms of network performance. So at least for this quarter, I thought it was an annual thing, but for this quarter, it's MTN number one. I guess yes. uh, is it going to be easy for Vodacom to overturn that uh, advantage of a point? <laughs> It, um, it, it, it comes down to, to how much they, they, they're willing to invest. Um, with, with newer technologies, uh, it, it does enable, enable the operators to, to see big improvements on, on, on their network. So with 5G coming, that, that's still a, a far way out. Um, but it's, it, it's a tough ask. MTN has been out investing Vodacom, um, for quite some time now and, and it, the, the turnaround on your investment into the network is, is not as quick as as a quarter. So they'll have to invest a lot. Um, they'll have to to improve their network even at a faster rate than what MTN is improving their network for them for them to make up that deficit. Marius Hollenbach is with my broadband, and I guess there's some good news there for Rob Shooter, who's uh, taken over recently as well, not so recently now as the chief executive of MTN. 
David Shapiro uh, reminds me. Do you remember? Do you remember staying alive? Remember the movie, of course, Dave? John Travolta, yeah. Walking down the streets. I think it was of New York. Yeah. It, it's what I imagined you doing, walking down the streets of New York. You know, kind of swe- um, swaying <laughs> and staying alive. Yeah. And, and to the BGs, yeah. <laughs> when did you get back? I got back yesterday. Yesterday morning, yeah. And you last uh, when we spoke last week, you were um, seeing quite a, a little bit about, or quite a lot about the mood there in the U.S. I guess on the on the long, long flight back home, you've had chance to really assess, assess it. Are you still uh, quite bullish about technology shares and so on? I I, I still remain, you know, I still remain of the view that uh, the ga- you know, tech is never going to stop. The gains in tech, and particularly in the environment that we see ourselves now. Um, that somewhere down the line uh, it's going to continue to push the economy. It's very hard to to work out who's going to win and who's not going to win. But I think, Alex, the thing is to just to keep in touch with developments, and somewhere along the line you'll be able to you know to pick up the trends. So I continue to believe that uh, uh, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in China, in all areas. Just watch those companies who are who are you know leading in in uh, technology, and I like big tech because those that are already making money. You know, you asked me about Uber. Um, I like the disruption that Uber is bringing, but you got to ask, well, who's going to make money out of this? And it's probably uh, actually I'm not quite sure in those in, in, in those circumstances, but it's uh, it's just a disruption that I find very intriguing and 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 enjoy. You know, enjoy trying to follow. It's a challenge to find the right kind of companies. And, you know, by doing that, we picked up a few months ago, which we've done fairly well, there's a company called ASML. And ASML is actually a Dutch company that produces, um, I'm not going to try the technological terms, but that produces lithography uh, or equipment, you know, from which you make the chips. Or, you know, you, you it's, it's highly, highly specialized equipment. You know what it reminds me of? Remember Buffett bought that Israeli company? Yes. It's, it's those kind of companies that I think become the winners that are leading edge of technology. They made specialized parts. You know, they had the machines that could cut or, uh, in this case, uh, ASML is a similar type company with leading edge uh, technology that has almost a monopoly in that kind of area. So I think the more you delve, you know, the more you go into, uh, you're going to find these kind of businesses. Iskar is the name of that company. That's I, right, I remember that's we right, were there yeah. together at the that's Berkshire right. AGM when, when yeah. he made the announcement. It was one of his, I still remember the, the headline in, uh, we then yeah. used to, we used to have the citizen, we used to have an insert in the citizen for money web. And I remember the headline was Buffett goes global. Uh, yes. I kept it for a long time. I don't know what happened to it somewhere along the, the path, but exactly that Iskar company. Dave, I, I'm almost sure that at that Berkshire AGM, which is some years ago, Jean-Pierre Fester was also there. We, we spoke to him earlier this evening and I asked him what he would be doing with his NASPAS shares. Now I know you're a huge supporter of NASPAS. Yeah. You've got this, this conundrum. Do you, do you convert your, your shares, uh, or part of your shares into uh, the international listing, and then pay tax on it, or do you do you uh, swap that back for extra NASPAS shares? What, what are you going to be doing? I, you know, I'm still debating. You're um, going to have to pay that tax eventually. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's going to happen somewhere down the line. You know, so so sometimes we actually kid ourselves 
uh, about tax. In fact, on every statement that we produce, we should actually have another column which is the potential uh, capital gains tax. I will hang on. My worry is that maybe those rates will go up at one stage. So I think we're taking a decision and, and um, you know, that we will pay the tax and actually go for the extra shares uh, in, uh, you know, in, in Amsterdam. Um, it's, it's there. It's built in. You've just got to, you've just got to have the cash flow set aside to do so. Well, that makes, I do like. Yeah, it makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense, Dave, because if you have a look at the demands on the South African Treasury, yeah. uh, there are going to be increases in taxes in yeah. one way or the other. So rather yeah. just bite the bullet today and hope that yeah, Masbis mm, get it. Okay. I, I, I think they're going to do well. I've been, I've been quite impressed by, by the latest results and how we're seeing things start to change. I know it's very early days in the classifieds and in other areas of the business, but it comes back to the delivery. You know, uh, when I drive home in the evenings uh, um, round about Melrose Arch, outside I see uh, must be 10, 15 odd people um, on motorbikes. These are Uber Eats, mm. you know, just waiting, <laughs> waiting to go deliver food. And I, and I look at it because I know that I think, uh, Nasdaq are also involved in these kind of businesses. So along the way, I think their, their quest for innovation and their quest to, you know, find something, I think eventually will reveal, uh, something else. Maybe not another Nasdaq. So I like, you know, I, I'm glad that they're going there and they're going to be able to raise the money. The one thing is that there's a lot of capital globally for, for a good idea. You know, that's what we spoke about when you asked me about my son-in-law's uh, uh, listing on NASDAQ. You know, we pulled up and uh, raised that point that there's so much cash out there looking for a home, looking for re- for innovation. So I think if you've got the ideas and if you've got a business like NASDAQ, which has built up such a magnificent um, name, I think, uh, and, and you know, it's experience in that area. This is almost like its own, you know, it's like a Silicon Valley, a mini Silicon Valley, something like SoftBank as well. So... I, I, I like the idea that they're going there and you know, going to look out for uh, for new ideas. Yeah, the, the point you make about the convenience or the food delivery service is one of the two big areas that they focus their mm. attention. And Delivery Hero, which they've got a big slug of, which is listed in Germany, gives you that indication as well mm. that it is a... It's a booming, yeah. booming area. Dave, just to, to close off with, we did talk a little earlier with Nick Dreyer. He's a, a co-founder of Feldskun, which is a yes, company that's yes. 49% owned by your pal, Brian Joffe. Now, yes. Brian, um, first, I'd like to just, just get a feeling of what Brian's up to because I don't know if you, if you read through the details of Dan Machila's uh, PRC statement. He said he went against the EdCon investment by the PRC because yes. he would have done it only if Brian Joffe had put in 500 million, which he wanted to do. So Joffe is certainly looking for the whales. Uh, <laughs> I, I think they would have been a bit too big for him to buy. And to be honest, um, he got half bitten with EdCon Ingram. I think they're only making their money back now. I, I think EdCon I would avoid. I, I think that was... Um, you know, talking to people who've been involved in raising the capital to save EdCon, I think I think the whole business model has to change, and I don't know whether they've got enough time or ammunition uh, to actually turn it around. I, I think I would avoid 
really avoid it. So I think he did himself a favour. Why the PRC went in, you know, I think maybe he was right. I'm, I'm not sure they should have been saved. But the consequences, and this is where the investment bankers came in. I think Investec were involved and some other big names. The big worry, and this is this is this is interesting talking to people. The big worry was that if Edcon failed. There were fears, literally fears, that people would storm the stores, you know, in protest of losing jobs. They would, because they were going to lose money, they would have grabbed goods and that. So there was a genuine fear of rioting around the country uh, if they closed the doors of, um, you know, of of of, of Edcon. That might have been a tool to get people to put money in. But uh, you know, some of the some of the stories that one picks up from, uh, you know, from just chatting to friends or chatting to people. Uh, are quite scary. So I think Joffy did himself a big favour by, you know, by, by not getting it and not being involved. Yeah, 140,000 jobs on the line yes, uh, with Edcon. Yes, Good. Uh, yes. Let's hope Grant Patterson pulls a, a few rabbits out of the hat there. <laughs> uh, David, but what about Feldskun? It's a it's a tiny business in the in in Joffy's uh, career. Yeah. But it's a very exciting one. They've got Ashton Kushta wearing them now in the United States and, and, uh, and going into Jamaica and going into Asia and. Uh, you know, I, one of my favourite pairs of shoes is the Feldskins well, that I own. They're so not going to date. They're not, not going to date. date. I can wear it to Newcastle any time and, and I'll be in fashion. Tackies <laughs> and Feldskins are not going to date. They're going to change their form. The, I, I, you know what I always do? When I was in the uh, underground, I would always look at the footwear. What are people wearing on that? And one of the big brands coming through is uh, Vans, a company called V-A-N-S. No, like... Uh, um, like some of the other tacky, I call them tackies and that. But, um, Alec, these, you know, that's what kids wear. It's, it's the sneaker mentality. So I don't, I think you'll change your designs a little bit, but I promise you, Felskun will still be there. They'll always find, uh, takers and it's, and it also comes down to marketing. So, um, I bought some, they weren't Felskun, they were clocks. Uh, you remember Clark's? Yes, yes. <laughs> you went to school in Clark's shoes. <laughs> you did but I've indeed. Or Barter. That's exactly. So I've got Clark's Felskrunner and that. And I still wear them, you know, with great pride. They just, there's just something about uh, Felskrunner that I always find attractive. David Shapiro is uh, always giving us his wonderful insights. And tonight, I know I'm, uh, I'm going to be overrunning my normal hour, but that doesn't matter. That's part of the whole live radio, internet radio story. And lovely to have David back from the United States giving us his unique insights. We've got a, a really good interview to close the show with tonight. Dave Woolham, uh, you might have remembered him a few weeks ago. He was on the show. He's a chartered accountant who blew the whistle on Tongart. We've had some developments on Tongard lately, but I've also asked David to have a look at the Bryden Commission. Sir Donald Bryden is a, a guy from uh, in the UK who's changing the audit profession there. He's been charged, Lord Donald Bryden, f- with uh, coming up with some new ideas for the auditing profession, which is long overdue, many investors would say. So stay with us. Oh, fireball indeed tonight, Dave Willem. Sure, Dave, uh, we've had an enormous amount of response to the article that you wrote on Biz News and to our interview on Rational Radio a little while ago. Uh, before we go into the, the uh, issues that I wanted to explore with you on the Sir Donald Bryden Commission, there's been some further developments on Tongot. Is this going 
in the way that you anticipated? Um, Eric, yeah, hi, good evening. Um, well, I think there's going to be continued developments on, on Tongart as the information begins to flow out. Um, you know, I think it's an ongoing story. Um, sadly, I think it's a, a worsening story. I guess the only ray of hope is that Gavin and his new team are somehow putting together an operational business plan that will help point the company back into a profitable profitable space. But there's a there's obviously a lot of there are a lot of things that have to come out, and uh, the credibility of the company is is really in tatters right now. Dave, I want to throw something at you. It's it's a conspiracy theory. So take it from whence it comes. But the new chief financial officer of uh, Tongart is ex um, Ilovo, Associated British Foods, who would be big beneficiaries if Tongart were to go under and offload their operations, some juicy operations in Zimbabwe and Mozambique. And the, 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 the sense, or certainly the, the conspiracy theorists, are saying, hang on, this is not very good because the Tongart shareholders are getting rolled over here. What's your thought about that? I think, look, I've met with Rob Aitken, um, the new CFO, and yes, he did come from Milovo, but my dealings with him are that he's an exceptional young man. I think he is quite, he's still probably, he wasn't ready to kind of step into the big role, but it presented itself to him. But I think he's actually a very smart young guy with a lot of integrity. I've been impressed by him. So I think that's probably a conspiracy theory that, you know, is one of many that kind of emerges out of these type of situations. I would be very surprised about that. Um, personally, I think the sugar industry is, you know, is facing a lot of, of its own issues. And I think this was of Tongat's own making. Mm. Well, let's see. I suppose the proof is in the pudding. If Associated yep. British Foods end up buying the Zimbabwean operations and the Mozambican operations for a song, uh, but there got to be other bidders, presumably. Um, RCL Foods would be interested in those as well. So I guess you're right. It's it's uh, given the benefit of the doubt until something funny happens. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's still there's there's so much murkiness around the company that probably nobody's looking until they get a clearer picture of exactly what um, the balance sheet looks like and what the sustainable earnings of this business are going to look like going forward. But the reality of all of this is that there were auditors, Deloitte, there were um, reputable people involved in the whole Tongart story. It's, you've unpacked it very well for us on Biz News that uh, it, it's pretty clear that somebody was asleep at the wheel somewhere. Of course, most investors are pointing fingers at, at Deloitte. Is this the right place? I think that there's no doubt that this is one of a, a number of really poor governance outcomes in South Africa and in the world for that matter. I think, you know, really over the last decade we've seen a kind of continuing theme emerging of corporate failures and one should separate normal business corporate failures from those that were maybe avoidable or where governance should have put the brakes on or, you know, where remedial action could have been taken earlier. But there just seemed to be too many. And we obviously had Steinhoff in South Africa, and we've had a whole list of other corporate failures that fall somewhere between. 
and now Tongat. Um, I, I think the outcome is a poor one where investors, especially pension fund investors, are investing their money into a market on the assumption that they're investing with good information, with sound, uh, and with a sound uh, governance environment. And the question I raised in, in my previous paper was, we shouldn't worry about this just from the point of view of the people who lose money in these particular companies that fail, but it affects the whole market because the risk premium, which is placed on the South African Stock Exchange, will rise if people don't have confidence in the quality of the companies and the governance that um, surrounds the market. So it should worry all companies and, and all players in the market. I think the external auditors are a particular focus point at the moment, and I think it would be easy just to throw rocks at them and point fingers as to where they've failed, and, and I think there is absolutely a need to interrogate the external audit process. Um, I think the one big question is where do the auditors' responsibilities start and end? Are they the police or watchdogs, or are they providing a, a narrow range of assurance? And that, de- that debate, I think, needs to be had. Maybe there's a higher expectation of the auditors, and maybe they should be uh, required to provide a higher level of assurance, uh, not hiding behind, uh, we're not here to identify fraud, or, or etc. Mm. Um, I think the industry has also changed a lot in the last couple of decades. Uh, I think that IFRS has become extremely complex, and so much of accounting these days <coughs> excuse me, involves judgment. Uh, I had a quick look just before I started this, and the IFRS Standards Handbook, which is published by SICA, is about 2,000 pages long. That's just the actual accounting standards that are required to publish a set of financials. It's For me, it's beyond expectation that the average person could even begin to understand that. And therefore, those that wish to manipulate it mm. have got a really wide open field to play games and use their own superior technical knowledge to bully auditors into submission. Yeah, and haven't we just seen that? But it's a good segue for what you've said now into what's going on in the UK, because the UK does set standards primarily for non-American companies. Americans seem to have their act together, as we have discussed before. But Sir Donald Bryden and his commission which is now having a look at things like this, things like should the auditors be paying more attention to fraud, um, should the, the, uh, the chief executive and the, financial, and the chief financial officer take more of a personal responsibility, indeed perhaps even go to jail if, if the numbers are found to be falsified and so on. It looks like it's a good step in the right direction, Dave. Yes, I think it is. I've, I've spent a bit of time looking at uh, what's going on there. There's, the UK is one of many jurisdictions that, is, that are looking at this, and in particular the, the CMA, um, the Competition and Markets Authority, has made some recommendations and put forward um, three main recommendations, a, a split between the audit and advisory businesses, um, so more accountability around the appointment of auditors, and strengthening their independence. And uh, a third one, which I'm not entirely sure I agree with, but a joint audit system where there's a kind of, call it a senior 
auditor and a junior auditor on each audit. But this commission has now been formed to explore these recommendations or, or this whole question and come up with a proposal or a framework as to how to strengthen. And I think probably one of the key words or phrases that's bandied about is this question of professional skepticism, um, the extent to which the auditors should be show skepticism or you know, and, and not get too close to their clients or to be too financially dependent on their clients, but also to go in with a, a skeptical starting point. That's not to say you distrust everybody, but I used a phrase in, in my article, which is we need auditors to be more bloodhound than Labrador. And that might be a little facetious, but I think maybe we've we've moved too much towards uh, a level of comfort in the audit profession where I think they need to become more sceptical and more questioning. Yeah, so Warren Buffett, as far as boards of directors are concerned, he says we want Dobermans, not lapdogs, but unfortunately <laughs> there are too many lapdogs uh, occupying seats on boards of directors. This, this story of scepticism, just to close off with that, it's not just auditors. You you could almost take it across society if you are uh, too skeptical of the President of the United States. You lose your seat in the White House press room. If you are too skeptical of companies on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange or if you attack them too aggressively, there's a, a, a chance that you won't be invited to the next Investment Analyst Society. I'm talking about not the media necessarily, but uh, investment analysts, and we've seen this time and again. Indeed, it even happened. It even happened with Tongard, where uh, a, an analyst at Investec said that the chief executive should go, and Investec management later came back at the time, it was a year ago, and said they apologised for his for his outburst. This is a very interesting world that we're in now, isn't it, Dave, where uh, there's a lot more onus on us to be to stand up and, and maybe be active citizens, not just in a, a political or in a government sense, but also in business. Yeah, I think that is right. And uh, there's always going to be a sense that there's an establishment, and not to use it necessarily in the political sense or in any negative sense, but there, there is an establishment of people, bodies, connected uh, groupings who, who tend to operate in a, in a smaller circle than the whole of society. And I think it's important that we have these bodies and people uh, who challenge the establishment, not necessarily always to just knock it down or to um, destroy it or be destructive, but to make sure that we don't get too much groupthink, that we don't start believing in our own rhetoric, on our own views. And so, you know, whether it's the audit industry, whether it's the non-executive boards, whether it's the asset management industry for that matter, who I don't think have shown a particularly robust um, view of their custodial roles as shareholders of companies. So I think all of these things should be challenged, uh, active media, um, shareholder activists, and just people questioning is very healthy. We should always be worried when people start asking, stop asking questions or challenging the status quo. Dave Willem is a uh, private investor, the whistleblower on Tongart, and uh, bringing us up to date with uh, the latest moves there and in the industry generally. Uh, that is a industry.
sorry, that is an industry that uh, uh, the auditing profession that's come under enormous amount of pressure. Not surprising, is <laughs> 2,000 pages uh, issued by Saka. Who the devil believes or is able to understand that and absorb it before you do an audit? Much, much simplification. Wasn't it Einstein who said that simplicity is the cornerstone of genius? Well, maybe that's what we need as a society. Thanks for being with us on Rational Radio this week. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, this new groundbreaking opportunity. I'm sitting here in, uh, well, uh, in, a, in a relatively small studio, probably the smallest studio that I've ever occupied in more than 20 years of broadcasting, and uh, it has been a lot of fun. Thanks for being with us. I can see exactly how many people are online, and so uh, I, I can see when you drop off as well. Mm, can't track you down and, and ask you why, but I can thank you very much for your support of this program and of Biz News, and we look forward to being back in your company. What exciting stuff around the corner for Biz News Radio, uh, and it's, it, it should be pretty easy to access now. Just put in biznewsradio.com, and there you go. Uh, we've got some interesting uh, innovations that will be coming, but uh, so far, so very good. Thank you again, and from Alec Hogg, until the next time, cheerio.